You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Mark Resepsinski and I, Niels Kastroblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. For those of you who are regular listeners, this podcast is all about voicing our differences on the one topic that brings us together, namely systematic investing, using the often overlooked but very robust strategy of trend following. We hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to learn more by diving into the back catalogue and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Andrew Beer, where we took a swing at answering some of the obstacles we often hear investors are struggling with when it comes to making an allocation to manage futures, and I hope we were able to provide some narrative that may help compel a few more investors to include managed futures in their portfolio. So if you missed that episode, I hope you go back and listen to that once you're done listening to Mark and I today. I also would encourage you to listen to the Wednesday episode where this week we spoke with Rory Johnston, who is an oil specialist, which allowed us to really drill into some of the less talked about aspects of the current energy situation. And uh, so again, I would encourage you to go and check out uh, Rory's uh, episode. And of course, let's not forget that you really should listen to the extra episodes Alan and I are producing and putting out on Mondays and Fridays, uh, where we uh, are very fortunate uh, to be speaking to the largest and most successful CTA firms in the world, which I think is essentially the first time ever where they have been kind of rounded up together more or less at the same time for in-depth conversation covering a wide range of topics that are all relevant to the firms themselves, but also to the industry as a whole. And we've got a lot more to come in this series. Mark, it is great to be back with you. It's certainly been a few weeks because it was uh, early December when we last uh, spoke. We're we're speaking at the end of another Fed-driven week, I think it's fair to say. But most importantly, how have you been doing since we last spoke? I've been doing pretty good, but I think I'm going to have to take some extra walks today to listen to all these podcasts that you've been piling up. You get some interesting guests. So, but but it seems like it's been a long time since the last time we talked. <laughs> yeah, it it has been, and and so much is changing in the world at the moment. So it's uh, it's hard to keep up. But yes, absolutely, I can only recommend you to listen to some of our colleagues uh, in 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 the uh, recent episodes uh, it's quite it's quite mind blowing really how uh, generous they are with their insights and and their time now we have a great lineup uh, actually some really good questions came in uh, that we're going to try and tackle um some of them have been uh, with me for a little while but uh, sometimes i need to wait for the right guests to uh, to come on or co-host to come on. So uh, we'll be de- dealing with some of those today. But if we just look at what went down uh, this week in the markets, I already kind of mentioned it. It was a week that was driven by um, the Fed. Uh, the tone of Chairman Powell's comments during the post-FOMC press conference left observers with a sense that the Fed was close to a peak in the overnight rate. Now, that was the week before, and that view was immediately undone on Friday the 3rd when the BLS reported that we had 517,000 jobs uh, added to the economy in January. Certainly not the outcome expected of an economy uh, on the brink 
uh, of recession. Now, to counter Powell's comments, Fed speakers this week resounded their hawkishness. Um, and it seemed to have worked as we saw the two-year note rising 40 basis points from last week's low in yield. The 30-year yield also rose by about half of the two-year move. The overnight versus 30-year spread remains inverted and is closing the week at about minus 80 basis points. And this is relevant because an inverted yield curve has a negative cost of carry for levered investors. And the risk is, of course, that investors will want to avoid this expense at some point and exit the trade, causing long rates to rise further. Effectively, it's the inverse of a short squeeze. That realization may have played the role in a somewhat disastrous 30-year auction on Thursday. Treasury notes and bonds trade on what's called a when-issued basis for a number of days prior to being auctioned. The praxis is useful because it gives investors a strong idea of what the yield level is going to be of the new issue. But Thursday's 30-year auction had a 3.2 basis points tail, and that was really a not great outcome, let's put it that way. And it equates to about half a point repricing on the bonds bought just before the auction. While this was a data light week, um, there was one indicator that struck out GDP now, jumped 2.15% from 0.67% last week. Now, GDP Now is a real-time series calculated by the Federal Reserve of Atlanta that forecasts the annualized GDP growth for the economy. And while we're only ha about half through the quarter, uh, the Fed will likely view that uptick as another indication that overnight interest rates is still not restrictive enough. Also released this week were the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index. While the various measures of activity and sentiment remain weak, the inflation expectation reading rose to 4.2% from 3.9% last month. That's troubling uh, in that sh it should be going lower at this stage of a tightening cycle. Finally, uh, on Tuesday, the BLS will release the January CPI report while the year-over-year year, year inflation is expected to ease somewhat to about 6.2% from 65 reported last month, the forecast for month-over-month -month inflation is an unexpectedly high 0.5%. So, again, another challenge for the Fed, or at least for those who hope that the Fed um, will come with a pivot soon. Let me bring it back to you, Mark. What's caught your attention for the last seven, eight weeks since we last had you on? There's so, so many things that we could talk about and what caught my attention, but I think that the Fed focus is probably the most important. And the thing that uh, we find very interesting is that if you look at the one-year break-even and two-year break-evens uh, in the treasury market for inflation, is that they were actually one-year break-evens were below 2% just a few weeks ago, and now they've risen about 70 basis points. So I think that they're, we're seeing inflation coming down, but you're now seeing break-even, uh, inflation break-evens actually going up. So there's, there's a lot of uh, turmoil in the market on what is really going to be going on in inflation later on this year. And we're having this massive fight between Fed saying, look, we haven't solved the inflation problem yet. We're going to continue to be hawkish versus the market, which has said, like, we're close to a peak and we're expecting that rates are going to be down. And what 
we're really finding the fight is, is is that it used to be the Wall Street adage, never fight the Fed. And right now we're having a view is, is that we do want to fight the Fed. The opinions are different. And I think that this is the big fight that's turning out to be for uh, 2023. And the other thing that we're sort of seeing in, in the um, current environment is, is that if you go back to December, you know, before Christmas, we really were embracing the stagflation story. So that inflation is going to be with us. You know, we, we are talking about either a deep recession or at, at, at best a soft landing. And now as we move forward, because we still have just strong labor markets, you mentioned GDP now, which I track and follow pretty closely, especially relative to the uh, blue chip forecasts, which they show. So, so you want to sort of what does the data say versus what the economists say in their forecasts? If you look at that gap, it says that we may not have a soft landing. We may have no landing. <laughs> we, we, we're in not a stagflation environment, but we'll call it slowflation. And given that, that has a lot of implications on what may happen for trends later on this year, which was something we could pr- probably talk to a little bit later. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's interesting, as you were talking about, I'm glad you mentioned this thing about uh, don't fight the Fed and then exactly the opposite is happening at the moment, which is, um, you know, so, um, yeah, it's a bit paradoxical, really. Um, But it also reminded me something that I also find a little bit paradoxical at the moment to jump to something completely different. And, And that is when I hear people at the moment talk about, oh, gold is going a lot higher because we have all this central bank buying and you see one article after the other about all the central banks who bought, you know, this amount of gold and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking back in history and I'm thinking, okay, so what is the track record of central banks really in terms of when they buy gold or when they sell gold? And really, I think they're probably the reverse indicator of when it's a good time to buy and sell gold because they've been selling at at the lows many years ago, around 200. And and, and I think you can go back further in time in terms of their their, um, sort of big shifts in terms of their holdings and they're being completely the wrong way around, really. So that's another paradox that I uh, that I've noticed in the narrative at the moment, right? And I and I think that the gold buying story we don't know what some central banks do because it's almost a state secret. But if we do see what the buying that's occurring by private individuals, and you could get that from the World Gold Council, is, is that you say there has been buying, but it's also very tied to the, to the value of the dollar. Now, let me just talk a little bit about trend following um, before we dive into the questions we have and also um, some of the topics that you brought along. And what I wanted to do today was not so much focus on what happened this week in trend. Uh, I mean, sure, um, because actually, I'm not so sure what happened, meaning I think there's a lot of return dispersion going on at the moment between managers. Um, So I don't think there is one clear way of explaining how trend followers are reacting, what's going on in the markets. And to give you an example of that is that I... I noticed back in December that we started to see some dispersion. Maybe it was because of we had a lot of reversals from mid-October to November. And, and of course, that could trigger differences between managers uh, when it comes to time frame, meaning some managers would have 
been triggered to change direction because of these corrections and other managers, maybe the longer term guys, um, would have kind of gone through this correction phase and and still be predominantly focused or exposed in the direction of the longer term trends. So I noticed that there's a small group of managers back in December that actually did uh, pretty well, uh, whilst the trend index were down for the month. And then I also noticed that in January, uh, although the trend index was down, there was also a group of trend followers that were down a, a lot more than than this. So, so again, an, a difference between peer group and, and, and a certain group of managers. And then I'm noticing at the beginning of February, or as we head into kind of mid-February, that I see the same pattern happening right now, where the trend index, although down uh, a bit, there are some trend followers who are actually up for the month. So it 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 kind of gives me this um, talking point, which is when investors look at trend followers, it's very uh, normal that you compare managers, uh, you know, manager to manager, and you look at different stats. But one of them will, of course, be the the sharp ratio. But of course, part of part of what really makes um, what really should be part of the uh, decision making is not necessarily what the individual sharp is for the manager, but actually what impact the manager will have on their portfolio as a whole to improve the portfolio sharp. And and clearly, you could say, well, if if you right now are, are a longer term trend follower who still are short, uh, who still short, um, say fixed income, um, that's probably going to be more valuable than managers who are shorter term in nature and might at the moment uh, have flipped long fixed income. I'm just using this as an, an example because it's fairly uh, easy to um, to think about. So there's no added value to the um, to the PNL when when bonds go down as they have done in the last few weeks again. So I think this is an interesting concept. Um, you know, uh, individual sharp versus portfolio sharp. I don't think that it's being spoken enough uh, about uh, in our industry and the conversations, uh, even on my side that I'm having. Maybe it's because. It, it takes a lot more work to uh, to work that out, so to speak, and to do the comparison than just comparing manager by manager uh, in terms of their their sharp. But I think actually it's a really important point, and it came up in one of the conversations we had in our CTA series. So we'll talk more about it as we release those episodes. But I actually think it's a really important point. So yeah, I don't know what you think about that, Mark. Well, there's there's a couple things when you realize is that. Uh, the index that people use in managed futures is just a combination of managers. So it's going to be an, uh, an aggregation or a weighted average of all of their timeframes. And, and their weighted average of that timeframes is going to be sort of, we'll call it more intermediate, whatever that intermediate might mean. And so what happens is, is that uh, if you are a longer term trend follower, you're going to have more variation versus your, the peer group which is the weighted average of all in managers in that index. And so what you're going to sort of see, you're going to see more dispersion in your return. So a long-term manager may not turn at the same point. So the, the turning points are not going to be the same as the index. So uh, similarly, what you're going to find is that the long-term managers are probably going to have more dynamic correlation versus long-only portfolio. 
what I mean by that, if the markets are all going up in the long direction, a longer term manager is going to get long. And so you're going to start to see a greater correlation with the overall portfolio that you may hold. On the other hand, if you have a bear market and a bear market lasts for a longer time, you're going to have more negative correlation because the long-term manager is going to get short relative to the benchmark of long-only indices that you may follow. So in a down market, the long-term trend-following manager will have better hedging characteristics or better diversification characteristics. On the other hand, what you're going to find when the market is going up, you're going to see that it's probably going to have more similar characteristics and it's going to create more convexity relative to the peer group. And the cost with that is what you're going to find out is, is that your performance is going to deviate from the peer group. So the question you always have to ask, do you want convexity? Do you want diversification? Or do you want to be something that's close to a peer group? And I probably say you want the first two and not the third. Yeah, yet there are so many signs, I guess, that investors tend to also like just being close to the peer group, uh, not least from the success that we've seen from replication products in terms of gathering assets. But generally speaking, I've certainly been in a lot of meetings where, well, unless you were part of the trend index, you couldn't be considered. And I thought, that's strange. Why would you not consider a manager that might be a little bit different from the uh, trend index? Um, so, uh, yeah, no, it's definitely worth a little bit more. It, it, it is amazing when you have a lot of the discussions, one of the first discussions you have about performance. First, you're going to ask about absolute performance, which is fair. And then the, the next layer of the onion is, well, what's your sharp ratio? So what's your return relative to volatility? And then you, sort of next level, for better or for worse, will always be is, how did you do versus your peers? Okay. And so the peer uh, review will be something that people take into consideration, but I think that that's not as valuable as the first two, but there always happens the discussion. Now, the really smart institutional clients usually form their own peer group of people that they would actually possibly invest. So let's say you have the peer group for managed futures, uh, but a lot of those managers, some of them you may not want to invest in. The really smart institutional investors will have a sub-peer group that they'll compare you against and say, this is the ones that I'm actually could potentially invest with. And so this is where I'm making a comparison. So they have a customized peer group for, for this type of analysis. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Speaking of peer groups, let's look at what's going on so far in the industry. So this is as of Thursday night, uh, beta 50 is down a fraction, 38 basis points for the month, down 41 basis points for the year. SockGen CTA index down 30 basis points for the month, down 1.1% for the year. And the trend index is down 47 basis points for the month, down 1.84% for the year. And the short-term traders index is actually up 12 basis points in February so far, and it's completely flat uh, for the year. And of course, we still have on the traditional side, we still have a good start for equities, MSCI World and S&P 500, both up about five, oh, sorry, six and a half to seven percent. And the world government bond index after a good month in January, it's now taking a breather. It's down 74 basis points so far in February. 
Now, we have three questions that we want to uh, tackle today. Um, or rather, you wanna, you, you're going to be the answering. I'm gonna, they're quite long questions. So I'm going to be reading them and then I'm going to be uh, interested in your, in your response. And the first one came in from Pete. Um, Pete writes, Hi Nils, I have a question for you and your co-host regarding rules-based systematic strategies. I'm, a str- I'm strongly in favor of keeping systems simple and most importantly, intuitive in order to encourage robustness. I hear often on the podcast and see from my own research in the commodity space that for long and short trend-following strategies, the long trades have a tendency to perform better in the backtest, partly due to carry effects um, in quite a lot of the markets. I've also heard, commented, and agree that downside moves in markets have a tendency to be different, to be sharper, and exhibit greater volatility. As trend-followers, we look to target the tails, and we accept that market returns do not form a normal distribution. If the distribution is normal, then there is no reason why it should be symmetrical either. I see it as a logical progression that trades on the short side might benefit from a slightly different set of rules to those on the long side. For example, by using the same ATR-based initial stop, but then later as the trade progresses, a tighter trailing stop for short trades. But I hear guests on the podcast advocate for applying the same rules to long and shorts, and I wonder why that is the case. All right, so that's the question number one. And then Pete came with another question, which we'll tackle afterwards. And he's absolutely right in what he says. I mean, this is exactly what we do say, that long-sided trades in the backtest shows up as being a lot more profitable but at the same time, we say, well, you should apply the same rules to long and short side trades. So help us better understand this, Mark. Sure. I, I think part of this is is the overall philosophy that generally you like to have uh, uh, robust models that are not overfitted to the data. And so and a robust, non-overfitted model will be simple. And so that then you apply the, both the same uh, to the long and short side. This is that because you don't want to sort of make an exception for every possible contingency. But at the same time, is is that there is enough evidence to suggest that the long and short side are uh, behave differently. And part of it is because of hedging behavior, especially in the commodities, who are the underlying constituents of the models? How do people actually want to sort of hedge their business. And what we find is usually, you know, when there is a market decline, it's usually very quick. It's more, it's followed with more volatility. While on the long side, those trends can last longer. And you may see an increase in volatility, but we'll sort of say that there's, you're not going to see a significant change in short-term volatility when markets are trending higher. So, Consequently, on the margin, you should be more aware of what are the difficulties of trading on the short short side. That may lead to changes in your short behavior. But we'll sort of say overall is that you want to sort of hug the idea that your model should be simple enough and robust enough to be able to be similar both on the long and short side. Now, I I don't want to be hedging my answer, which I just did. But I, I would sort of say that it's well noted this is that that there is this difference in behavior. 
And what I've done in the past is, is to make sort of some adjustments for when you see, when you trade from the short side. So, so I think that making some tilts to account for this is appropriate. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's a good answer, but I, but, but I think also um, one other thing that I think we have to uh, recognize is that, and, and in some markets it's easier to maybe visualize than in others. And I think it is easy to visualize, say, for example, fixed income, right? Fixed income for the last 30, 40 years, because we were in a, uh, essentially a, a, an interest rate cycle that was just, you know, keep going down. Yeah, short-sighted trades didn't work very well. But does that mean that now, as we look into the future, um, that that's still going to be the case? Um, one could actually argue that short-sighted trades might, as they did it last year, uh, work really well without having you know made any changes uh, and all biases. And 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 if you had done that. Uh, so unless you start making kind of discretionary calls about when you want to change your bias and when you don't want to change your bias, but if you just want something that is purely systematic, well, then it is probably a safer bet to say, well, we're going to continue to treat things uh, the same and we accept that it may not be optimal at all times, but there will be periods where certain markets will be very profitable to, on the short side, even using you know parameter calibrations that... Um, you know, during periods of time may not work so well. So I think you make a very good point. And you have to think about when we talk about trading from the long and short side, is it the bias of profitability on one side or another? Is it a cyclical problem, which has been a fixed income? Is it a behavioral problem? And usually what you find is that, that there's a overreaction to bad news and an underreaction to good news. So, so uh, you'll have more violent moves when you have bad moves and, and because people have to get out. And so they become very crowded. And so the, the hard part of trading from the short side from a behavioral aspect, the market goes down, it overreacts because everybody's trying to get hit the exits. And then it bounces back a little bit from that overreaction. And so if you enter into your shorts at the bottom, then you get the bounce from the overreaction and then you're already sort of locking in some profits. Usually on the long side, there's a underreaction because people who are already long, they don't want to get out. And so new people have to come in and so they, they sort of force the market higher. And then there's, we'll call it a structural difference between long and shorts, because that would might be related to, you know, who are the natural hedgers in the market? So when you talk about whether a long or short is profitable or not profitable, you have to look at that in the context of those three things cycle. So, uh, you know, no one, uh, it was hard to make money on being short bonds because the cycle was, is that rates are going lower behavioral and then structural. And now, Again, that that's that's where you know when we talk about model building, and we say that okay, keep your models always the same. You still have to realize that you have to overlay what is the environment you're dealing with, and you have to have you know we'll call it uh, what the uh, AI people say domain knowledge to sort of help you give you a little bit of edge on your model. So the domain knowledge is to understand that difference between cycle behavior and structure. 
you mentioned AI, and that's an interesting actually point uh, also to m- mention here to Pete in in this answer, and that is, it, you know, AI. If you were applying that, and let's just stay with fixed income, clearly AI would have learned to buy the dip. So if you were just if you were just doing this as a research project, and you would just happen to use the last forty years worth of data, which is really what most futures markets, we don't really have much more data than that. They didn't exist, certainly not the financial futures. They came on later than commodity futures, right? So we don't have a lot of data in a rising interest rate environment when it comes to that. So unless you go and 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 and, and buy uh, data from special sources, which most people don't bother doing, your data set is going to be pretty uh, biased or one-sided. So like an AI strategy, and, and as, as Pete suggests, you p- would probably come up with slightly different rules when it comes to short-sided trades. But that's also why I think a lot of these AI-type strategies can in- get into real trouble because they are learning something that is just, as you say, it's cyclical. It doesn't necessarily mean that that's how markets always behave. Uh, that's the challenge. And this is also why I am... I, I don't know if I've uh, ever seen a firm, although I will say one of the managers, we recently relo- uh, launched a, an episode with Lynx. They did say that they had some success with, with, with AI or machine learning, but they also said that they were cautious in terms of, quote-unquote, how much uh, they allow it to, to, to learn, so it's not completely unsupervised, right? Niels, that's not an AI problem. <laughs> that's a that's a human uh, pr- a problem uh, as well. And and part of this is when we always talk about backtesting. You say like, well, how long have you backtested? You often say that you want to use as long a history as possible. And part of the idea of using long history for backtesting is is that then you cover the domain uh, the the space of time for all possible contingencies you you're training on both maybe when interest rates are going lower and interest rates are going higher so but if you're doing a back test over 40 years and you have this bias with rates going down is that you have no real training set so the way that you look at this or one way in which you look at this is is that you try to want to sort of say i train or look at my models contingent on the environment that i'm in and so one way to view this in a very s- simple point of view is like, well, where are we in the business cycle? So if you're a different point in the business cycle, your trend behavior will be different and your biases on long or short will be different than if you're at a different point uh, in the business cycle. Now, what happens is that because we know that uh, recessions and bear markets you know, are often associated with recessions are very short-lived and generally don't represent most of the time. Now you have to then sort of pull out some of those environments and say, okay, if I'm in this regime, what will happen? But I know this regime might only occur 20% of the time and 80% of the time might be in, I might be in a different regime. And so there are things that you can do to test models to handle these different uh, environments, but it's not an easy problem. And it's not this, it's not just saying, I look at more data. It's actually trying to understand what happens in different regimes in that data set. Yeah. 
No, absolutely. And speaking about regimes, I mean, you can you can broaden it out even further and say, well, we've been in a globalization regime, quote unquote, for the last 70 years. And, and now that may be changing. So how much data do we really have to work with in a world that might be deglobalizing? I, I, I mean, I don't want to get into it, but I'm just saying there are so many challenges with these things. And that's why, in a sense, I also, I actually like keeping it simple and not making it too clever because I think there is a truth to the fact that it will may, may not be the best at all times, but it's probably the more robust way of doing it. Um, but let's leave it for that now because Pete had a follow-up question. Um, and he writes, when adding a new trading strategy or market to your portfolio, if the system is signaling a current position either long or short, what do you think is a better practice to enter the position right away or to wait for the first new trade entry, which might be months away or years away, but would ensure the entry and stop on the first trade are more consistent with the backtest? How do you handle these things when you do your... Right. So so I think that uh, it also depends on exactly what type of uh, trend follower you are or what type of trader you are in general. This is, is that so think of it this way is if you're if you have a very long horizon, okay, then your entry point isn't that important because that might uh, represent a small fraction of what the total return that you're expected over the horizon that you you're looking at. So on the other hand, if you're a very shorter term trader, this is that entry point might represent uh, or the impact of an entry point or exit point might have a significant portion of your total return so that you want to be more sensitive to entry and exit the shorter expected horizon that you have. So short-term trader has to be very cognizant of where they get in because if, let's say, I'm looking at a one- or two-day horizon, this if, I, if I give up a couple ticks, that could be the difference between a profitable and unprofitable. If my trade is going to last for three to four months, this is that you'd say like, well, you know, I, I, if I feel like there I should be long, I should just get long because my entry point isn't going to be that significant relative to what I expect over the life of the trade. So, so part of it is, is what your expected horizon is. But generally, you I find is, is that you want to enter trades as quickly as possible. You want to just sort of say, if you get a signal, be able to execute but at the same time, is is that if you see that there's some uh, uh, there's ways in which you could be able to sort of either VWAP it or look at other mechanisms to be able to sort of say like, well, I'm not going to harm myself if I see that there's something that's going to uh, impede me from getting my tr trade uh, done effectively. The most important part is that because if you're on a if you're a trend follower, you're always a liquidity taker as opposed to a liquidity provider. So markets are going up and if you want to get long, okay, well then you're you're taking liquidity. So so liquidity considerations are really important when you put, put your trade on and so you should try to get in as quickly as 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 possible cognizant of the fact that there that uh, that of liquidity considerations. Yeah, and, and maybe just uh, point you, Pete, to a conversation I had with Rich not long ago, and he's explained this a couple of times in terms of how he uh, reruns a an, an an overall kind of um, recalibration of his 
trading program as a whole, and and there will be new models introduced uh, once a year, and some models being taken away, and and then how he handles the actual position change, um, which I'm pretty sure he will just let the positions stay on from the old systems until they mature or stopped out or however we put it, uh, and then put on uh, new positions for, for from the new system. But you can go and check that out. We appreciate your questions, and we're going to jump on to a question that came in from Callum. Um, Callum is referring to one of the CTA uh, episodes we are currently doing um, over in the TTU series, episode 127 with Ryan O'Grady from Row Asset Management. And he has a question. He says, Ryan said something that I don't understand and would appreciate if you could explain the point to us listeners. He said trend following is not really long volatility, but rather what trend followers are is their long, low frequency vol and short, high frequency vol. Love the show. Thanks for great content, Callum. So, Mark, are you able, I know this is not your words, uh, your explanation, but are you able to shed some light on what Ryan uh, means by, by this? Right. Uh, I think first Ryan's a smart guy and he's, he's, he's got a great, great firm and uh, he's not smart because I agree with him, but, but that, always, <laughs> that always helps. So, uh, so the way I view this is, is that uh, I, I think of this as, and, and I've used similar terminology, but I just like to say that a trend follower is long, long volatility and short, short volatility. And what, what do I mean by long volatility? Okay. Uh, what you want to say is that over time, as you move through time, is, is that you want to have a lot of dispersion in prices. And it shows up when you look at the longer term volatility of a market. And so, because we know that through time is, is that prices will spread by the square root of time. Right. So, so I want long volatility because I want markets to move to one tail or another from that distribution. That's how I make money. If a market was very tight and at very low volatility, my return potential is very small. So, so I love long volatility. The problem comes in is that what happens with short volatility, and it would you could call that the vol of vol, okay, or just what happens if there's a spike in volatility. Well, in that case. Let's look at it, what a what a trend follower does. Is that usually he'll put on a position, he'll have the ability to switch that position if there's a change in signal, or he'll put on a, a stop at the same time to minimize his risk. Okay, and when you put a stop on that, what you're actually doing is creating an option, and in particular, it's a knockout option. So I have a position. If the market goes down by X percent, it hits my stop, I lose the position. So that would be as if my option is knocked out. Instead of paying that premium to a market maker in the options market, I'm sort of uh, self-insure. I'll pay, you know, I'll just sort of say that's uh, the premium or the difference between the price and the stop is the amount of money that I'll risk. So instead of paying it out as premium, I pay it to myself or the, the cost is what the investors will, uh, will pay for my system. And so in this case, if let's say that there's a spike in short-term volatil- uh, volatility or the market sort of moves against me initially, I hit by my stop. I could maybe have the, in the long run, the trend could be actually positive, but because I hit my stop, I lose my position. 
So, so that's in the sense is that I'm long, long volatility and I'm short, short volatility. So how do you solve that? Is that one is that you have to have your stops maybe initially much lower uh, than what you might anticipate if you were just looking at a, like a one standard deviation event because you say, I don't want to lose that position. So I'll take more risk if it's an adverse move. So, or you have to sort of accept that, uh, that this is the cost of doing business that I might have a strong long-term trend, but because my signal gets reversed because of short-term volatility, I might lose that, uh, that exposure. Very good. All right. I hope that was helpful for you, uh, Colm. And, and uh, yes, uh, certainly encourage people to go and, and listen to the full episode with Row Asset Management there, but also to all the other episodes in that series, because there are really some golden nuggets, and you find the different. You find out that there are differences, even though we all look similar in many ways, because we're quote unquote trend followers for the most part. But you certainly find there are some nuances to how um, we approach. Uh, the concept of trend following. Now, the next question is a long one. Um, it is from Tim. And let me just say um, that I appreciate, Tim, that you are very good at sharing and liking all my posts uh, uh, on social media. So I really do appreciate that. I certainly uh, noticed this. So, of course, happy to answer your question. Now, your question was actually meant for, for Andrew Beer, who was here last week. And I completely missed getting that into the uh, the structure of my conversation with Andrew last week. So I apologize for that, but we're going to give it a go today instead. Tim writes, thanks for continuing your work and putting in uh, this uh, the efforts with the Systematic Trading and Trend Following podcast, which I regularly tune into. I have a question on the topic of performance versus AUM, which I'm keen on getting some insights to from you and your guest. On the discretionary fund side, there is some evidence of the relationship between growing AUM leading to lower fund returns. This is plausible as many funds become asset gatherers, focusing increasingly on fee income rather than maximizing performance once the fee income reaches a level that provides a comfortable and stable income for the fund managers. By being able to produce better capital preservation and lower drawdowns, investors are likely to stay invested in the fund and willing to give up some of the upside returns, which they may have enjoyed while the AUM were lower. In a discretionary fund, it is easy to reduce exposure and hedge off risks where desired. But how about the systematic fund side with trend followers? Assuming the strategies are being executed in the same way, there should be be no change in moving towards a lower volatility slash cap capital preservation type mode. Certainly, uh, some firms like Dunn keep on producing returns of similar magnitude to when AUM was sm much smaller. My question is whether more generally systematic slash trend following funds also find ways to reduce exposure in order to protect their AUM once they reach a certain fund size. Some Changes in strategies may be inevitable uh, with growing AUM as scalability of strategies have limits, potentially forcing changes in, say, instrument selection and portfolio constructions methodology. Related to this, another question would be whether there uh, is a sweet spot in terms of AUM for the systematic or 
trend-following fund that allows the, uh, for training in the full set of relevant instruments while producing the best possible returns. I would very much appreciate you and your guest thoughts on this and also considering in case of Andrew's fund uh, has seen significant increases in AUM since launching. Many thanks. Best regards from Tim. All right, Mark, you've been around for a long time. You've seen many firms grow. You've seen many returns shrink, I'm sure. Is there a link there? This is a really important question, uh, both from the management of the business of, uh, of a systematic manager as well as for for the investor there are uh, capacity limits to how much a manager could be able to manage there is a sweet spot we often don't know where that is and it may vary from firm to firm but it does exist so so let's talk about this on a, on a number of different levels is is that one uh there's just a behavioral issue is, is that what you find is is that that uh, and this applies to discretionary managers, and then I'll talk about how it affects systematic managers. From a behavioral aspect, running a larger firm where your position sizes get a lot larger and then the dollar values become much larger has an impact on your behavior. This is it. You'd say, ah, if I lose 2% and I'm running a $10 million fund, that's a lot different than uh, losing 2% if you're a billion-dollar fund. It's, this is that from a psychological perspective. The advantage with systematic managers is that usually they can be able to handle the behavioral aspect of a discretionary manager as, as to wrap his head, head around. So that's a little bit different. So, so that's in favor of systematic. So there is clear business issues. And, and what you find out is, is that if you run a business and you start to get higher fixed costs, you start worrying more about management fee and retaining assets as opposed to uh, just trying to maximize return and incentive fees. And that's both because you have the high fixed cost of running the business. Second, what you find from a marketing perspective is you, uh, it's, it's much better to retain a client than go out and, and get a new one. So it, it's more costly to get a new one. And usually if, if let's say, a, a client leaves you if you're a manager, you're never going to see them again. So uh, if someone had an experience, let's say that they invested with firm ABC, and then uh, they uh, have experience a drawdown. They take a loss and they leave it. It's not that five, you know two three years later they're going to say, "Well, ABC is doing really well now. I think I'll put my money back." They'll find another manager. They will not go back to ABC. So, so from a business perspective, this is that you want to sort of take off risk or you want to try to sort of smooth out your pattern because you don't want to lose those clients for better or for worse. That's the way what what happens. But the most important from the investment perspective is, is liquidity capacity. And what you find is, is the managers get larger and larger once they hit a certain threshold, they're going to have to focus more on the financials as opposed to the commodities. And what you, so what you find is, is, is that uh, our very largest CTAs will have a financial bias relative to more equal weighted across asset classes. And so consequently is, is that they might hold oil, they might hold corn, but then in some of the other larger, let's say gold, but if you get beyond that, when you get to some of the smaller soft commodities, they'll either 
not trade them, or they become de minimis in the performance. And then what you also find is, is that it changes how you behave in terms of your trading. It's just that as you become larger, it's going to be harder for you to you employ shorter-term strategies. You, you've got to become a little bit more long-term. So, so consequently, is, is that that has a big uh, impact, this liquidity capacity issue. And I probably sort of say that firms I've, I've been with, have we would have deep discussions every year on what is the capacity we could handle and what would happen if, let's say, liquidity started to dry up. And the problem comes in is, is that you could measure liquidity at the beginning of the year. And during the year, it actually may change and it might affect your ability to be able to get trades off. And what does that mean? Well, you can have situations where you could put on a trade and your volume could be a significant portion of the daily volume of that market which means is that you may not be able to get your full trade off in a single day. And if let's say that there is an adverse move, you could find a situation is, is that I can't get out because my actual behavior will start to affect the price itself. So it, when you think about it or from a reflective point of view is that to, so my action is changing the prices that are then entering the, my model, which then will feed back to tell me what I should do next. So uh, at the extreme, we'll sort of say, let's assume I have to get out of a position and I start to sell and my uh, volume is so high relative to the total volume for trading that I force the price lower. That goes into my model and that says, okay, I should sell more. And so you could actually get a feedback loop where you actually are now create more selling. So where is the capacity for any one manager? This is it. It's hard to say, but I think that if you invest with a manager, uh, so retail may be different, but I think that for an institutional investor, you should be asking the question, tell me about your capacity. Tell me how you arrive at the capacity and tell me how you monitor capacity. And I don't think that that question is often asked as much as it should be. And, and so, so I think that this is a critical issue because it will come back and affect the returns that, uh, that a firm can generate. Yeah, no, I think uh, all very valid points. And, and I'm sure uh, Tim will appreciate uh, that. I will, I will add one thing that has in my view, kind of a little bit of an indirect impact as well, um, which is something we haven't really seen up until maybe 10, 15 years ago. And that's when these flat fee funds started to come out. Because personally, and of course, this is a biased statement, but, but uh, nevertheless, I think it's true. I think there's a difference. The way you think about research when you are mostly paid from incentive fees or performance fees are mostly paid from fixed management fees, where it doesn't really matter whether you made 6% or 10%, you get the same fee. Um, this is also why I have a little bit of a, uh, I'm more skeptical, let's put it that way, about these replicator uh, strategies, etc., etc. And and uh, I am skeptical. Um, luckily, most, most firms, they have both, right? They're not necessarily one or the other, but a lot of firms have both, so you can choose. 
Um, but I do like the idea that there is a link between how well the programs are performing and how well the manager is doing. If there is no link between the two, I, I would be a little bit concerned about that. Now, this is a really interesting problem because in some sense, this is that uh, uh, let's take the extreme of a very large manager and a very small manager. So a very small manager is, is that, you know, a lot of uh, investors will say, well, you're a small manager. I'm an early investor. I want a discount. Okay. So, so, and the small manager might say, well, yeah, I guess if I want to raise the assets, I'm going to have to give the discount. But in reality is, is that you're sowing the seeds of your own destruction because if let's say that he gives you the discount, but then he doesn't have enough money to run the firm, then that's going to affect your ability to uh, his ability to generate returns and for you to actually receive a return on, on your investment. So in some sense, small firms is that you almost sort of say, well, I should expect that you should return more, but I shouldn't want to have a discount because I want to make sure that you actually have all the tools available to generate the returns that you need. On the other hand, let's say you look at a very large firm. It's just, they say like, well, I want them to be incented to be able to generate the most return possible. So I could sort of say like, I don't want to pay you a management fee. I want to pay more of an incentive fee because I want you to be more aligned with me and have more of, you know, we'll say money at risk. And you'll say, you've covered your fixed cost or you should have covered your fixed costs. I don't want you to now extract more rents from the management fee that you could just go to your pocket. I want you to be aligned with me. So I want to have, you know, more incentive fees. So depending on the size, which should affect how you should negotiate or what the fee structure should be. Generally, this is that you always want to have people have greater incentive fees for the simple reason is that aligns their uh, aligns their interest with your interest subject to the fact that they could sort of control volatility. And so so because if you say have too high of an incentive fee, then you could sort of say like, well, I'm just going to try to shoot the lights out, and uh, all because I know that I get a huge payday today if I when I hit that incentive fee, and then if you have a drawdown afterwards, well, that's 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 your problem. <laughs> I've already banked all of the incentive fees, so the way to deal with that is is that in a perfect world, you like to have people charge more of an incentive fee, but you'd like to see from a firm basis that some of the partners are putting money back into the fund itself or putting back money back into the business and have their money at uh, their own personal money at risk. Yeah, no, I think actually, and I think that is a question that uh, is definitely uh, should be asked uh, when people do due diligence. A very simple question, that is how much does the senior people at the company, including the owners, uh, have invested in the strategy of their own, you know, net liquid worth or whatever you, however you define it? I think that's a, a super important question because that obviously, at the end of the day, uh, tells you how much real skin in the game they have and so on and so forth. But let's leave that topic for now uh, because we do want to just hit on some of the topics that you brought along as well. So uh, I'm going to let you uh, pick a few of them. Um, there we can go 
with black swans and pink flamingos and uh, or mega threats. Uh, there are so many buzzwords when uh, when I get uh, ideas from you to talk about. So I'm gonna let you uh, speak on on the topics you want, and and we'll we'll take another twenty minutes or so to uh, to discuss these. Niels, can, can I can I make a just to sort of talk about the fact that I've made some changes in in my life. Absolutely, of course, of course, you can. I appreciate that. So, so I, I'm now a partner in Theme Analytics, and so uh, with uh, three other people, we're uh, so we're starting and uh, we have a, a quant firm uh, that we're building. It's, it'll be uh, a set of different strategies. Uh, so, my partners are Tom Fazio, which I've known for tw- uh, 20 years. Worked for Goldman Sachs. Andrew Bruner used to be at uh, Stevens Capital as a great quant, and Peter uh, Wild, who used to work at Facebook, but is a great technologist. And so we have a set of uh, software engineers, and I think we're gonna we're trying to build a firm that's based on a philosophy of looking at what we call change point detection. And I think that this is an overriding view of how we think about markets that includes trend following, but also trend reversal. And the sense is that what you really look for, for any, you know, systematic manager or any quantitative manager or any manager in in general, is that you're looking for change points because change represents uh, opportunities for returns. If you can identify when markets are crowded, if you can identify periods when new information comes in that would create changes, then you could be able to be able to exploit those. And that's what you want to try to do on a systematic basis. So in some sense, a trend following is a special case of change point detection in the sense is that if there's no change, trends will continue. When you do see a change, then you reverse your position from, let's say, long to short or short to long. So similarly, is, is that what is a market reversal? It's just a, it's an opportunity for change. It's And what you try to do is you look for those chances where the likelihood that prices will reverse and you try to exploit that. And that's what change point detection is all about. So- can I can I ask you a question about that? You used the word change point detection, but am 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 I right in saying that you you what you're referring to is kind of t- turning points in markets? I mean, is it the same or? Sure, this is it. Change point detection has a statistical meaning, and so so and and so ways of looking at uh, detecting uh, changes in a time series or any type of series of, of data. But when you t- when you think about it, is, is that we could use a number of different terms for that. So it could be turning points, it could be regime changes, it could be change point detection, which we call it. So so it's 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 a a name for a lot of different ways in which people look at uh, opportunities in the marketplace. So so when you think about it, this is that, well, what is trend following? Trends is that we sort of say we, we find the markets moving in the same way, but every day, what you as a te- uh, trend follower, you say, well, is the price movement the same or has there been a cha- uh, detection of a change in the price? And, and that's in terms of trend. 
So, and then the next day we move forward. Is the trend the same or is it, uh, is it moving in a different direction or have the potential to move in a different direction? So you can look at the likelihood of changes on every different day for different series. And then that can be exploitable. And, and since it can be done in different forms, we could sort of build a number of different ensemble of models that can be able to uh, provide a better return to risk payoff. So that's what I'm working on. I'm really excited and I have some, uh, some great partners to work with. And uh, I think the nice part about it is that they all have different skill sets if I was a statistician, as I sort of say that our, our skill sets are all orthogonal to each other. So, uh, but, but I, uh, and they're good people. So, so I'm really excited about this and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I feel like this is the right time and the right opportunity to, to, to take. So, so I'm glad to be a partner with the uh, theme analytics. Absolutely. Sounds exciting. I'm sure we'll hear more of that. Now, well, we got a few points, and I'm, I don't think we can get through all of them. Some of them we have touched on in the past. So if you want to pick a few that uh, are kind of new, um, that you think are the most relevant, let's let's do uh, a little bit of that. Right. The key is when we talk about now in February 2023, I think that while we've already started the year and we've already had a great January in terms of equity markets, but I think we always say like, What's always looking forward, and and the way I look uh, seem to look forward is is that I try to say like how do we can characterize this time so uh, of of year this is a, what should we expect and I think that there's you see in in the talk around the markets that there's a lot of terms that have been thrown around and so they talked now we're under mega threats. So the I think the word of the year for 2022, or at least I I, I like this is the year of the word is we're in poly crisis. Uh, others people sort of say we're having a confluence of calamities, uh, and all of this suggests is that we're facing a, we'll call it radical uncertainty. And radical uncertainty is is that we're having a number of crises that all come together or number of shocks that come together that causes more dislocations. And they're not very uh, predictable. And in some sense, why is this important from a trend follower to think in, in terms of radical uncertainty and radical, we'll call it disequilibrium? Because if we look over the last two years, this is a, that that these large disequilibriums have been the drivers for all of our performance. Look at the last two years. This is that what we have is one shock after another. First, we had the supply shock from the pandemic. You, you, you close down the markets, they cre create a supply shock, and then supply shock became a supply chain shock. But, but what you did is, is, is that you stopped the economy. And so that's gonna cause large disequilibriums, which people were able to exploit. Because of that large supply shock, then the Fed responded with large liquidity, which actually had, a, it was another type of shock. Then we opened markets up and we had a demand shock because you had pent up demand. A lot of people had excess savings, especially in the United States. So now they had to, what did they have to do with their savings? They had to go out and buy or they wanted to spend. And so we had a demand shock and we had an oil price shock. We had a geopolitical shock. And so what we've seen is that if you look at the series of shocks that all cause disequilibrium, those caused 
price trends, which is what we ex- exploited. Now there has been some new memes about inflation that we have to. That the general view is that inflation is always and everywhere a monetary th- phenomena, which is the old Milton Friedman. Some of the latest thinking on. Inflation said, like, well, what you do really do have is it's, it's a series of disequilibriums that show up in these price indices. So, so if you have a disequilibrium in in energy markets, then you have a uh, have a big shock to oil prices, energy prices that shows up in the inflation numbers. If you have a shock to housing, that affects housing and rent prices, so it shows up in in inflation. Now we have a reversal of those shocks. Now we're seeing a, a decline in inflation in, in some countries. So from the point of view of the trend follower, you say is that if we're in an environment where we have more radical uncertainty, where we have more potential for disequilibrium shocks, this is going to be good for us. And this is what we're, we're sort of looking for. Now, the problem comes in is, is that can you really forecast these disequilibrium? I, I can sort of now say in February 2023, here's a set of shocks. This is why we made money. And so, therefore, is, is that this is, uh, this is how the markets operate. But uh, at the time, I probably knew I was in some shocks, but I couldn't really understand them in real time. I could it'll just sort of say is I'm being a realist, I, I didn't. And so so this is reason why we have to sort of follow the price action because in sometimes when I'm in a shock or I'm in one of these periods of radical uncertainty, I can't figure it out in real time myself, or it is it not immediately apparent. And so the price action will tell me that this disequilibrium is is uh is actually occurring. And I'll sort of say the reason why we always look to price as primal, which we've talked about before on, on, on this show, is, is that I go back to uh, uh, Jason Zweig's The Devil's Financial Dictionary, which is a great funny book. So so if you look under the word forecasting, so uh, and I always keep this in mind, he says forecasting is the attempt to predict the unknowable by measuring the irrelevant, a task that in one way or another employs most in Wall Street. And what you sort of say is is that that's what most talking heads on Wall Street do, is is that they'll they'll sort of measure the irrelevant facts, provide you a lot of information, but they're not making any predictions. So what we want to try to do is follow the facts and the facts is, is what the prices are doing on, on trends. So, so what does this uh, mean? Is this is that I try to use the phrase that we're in the age of, of disconnect and, and sense of deglobalization. We had sanctions. We got now monetary policy differences. We got fiscal policy differences, uh, so that are starting to rear. Uh, we have dislocations because of energy price policy, climate change policy. And we add all these together. In the age of disconnect, we're going to get more dispersion in prices. We're going to have less correlation. And that increases the opportunity for trend followers because the markets are going to be less correlated. So we can be able to 
find more unique trades. So let's give an example. This is that if you have more disconnect around the globe, we should see the correlation of global equity markets start to go down. If we sort of see the correlation across global equity markets come down, then that means there's going to be more dispersion in returns, and we're going to be able to sort of see more opportunities that arise. If we have more disconnect, so, and that could be by sanctions or monetary policy differences, then you could sort of see there's going to be more differences in interest rates across the world. And that should give us more opportunities. A perfect example is, is that we have China and the Bank of Japan and make it, maybe that will change after March, but, but they're still sort of uh, following sort of, you know, quantitative easing, very loose monetary policies. We've got the United States more hawkish. You look at the ECB is probably He's talking hawkish, but if you look at the gap between inflation and, and actual nominal rates, they got a lot more work to do. So because of those differentials, we're going to see more opportunities in currency markets. So, uh, so I think that overall, when I look at the year right here in February, there might be a lot continue to be opportunities. That being said, is, is that the big overhang is what I call the slowflation environment versus a stagflation environment. So in a slowflation environment, let's say labor markets continue in the U.S. to be still fairly strong. That means is that growth will continue, albeit you look at some of the other real numbers, you're not as strong as what we'd like, but we may not go into a recession in 2023. Similarly, is, is that the Fed may continue to be hawkish, but they may raise rates to a certain level and then keep them stable at that higher level. If that's the case, this is that we could be see a pattern that that rates are going to not fall in the second half of the year, but they're just going to sort of sort of stay at the current level or plus or minus you know fifty to seventy five basis points. So so the big challenge for trend following is, is that if we have a slowflation environment, stable monetary policy, no recession, that we may not get the disequilibriums that we'd like to see or have seen for the last two years. So, so overall, I'd sort of say that the year for trend following and the year for global macro is going to be based on the level of disequilibrium that we see in the uh, in the coming 10 months. So we need some of the confluence of calamities. We need a polycrisis, which people have been talking about. We need those to actually appear to create disequilibriums to offer us opportunities. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate all of that. And, um, and I mean, of course, those... Um a lot of things that we can already see that gives us a lot of uh, cause for uh, or a lot of ground for thinking, well, this is a pretty uncertain environment. But of course, we always have to add all the things we don't know. And um, like with most crises, we never forecast them um, because they come out of nowhere. And I'm sure in the next 
10 months uh, that you look at here, um, there's going to be things that we can't even imagine right now, um, whatever that might be. There was one point before I wrap things up, uh, <laughs> Mark, that I was a little bit interested in uh, one of your many uh, good headlines. So I wonder where you were planning to go with that, and maybe you can do it briefly. And that's the Moneyball 20 years later. What, what was your thinking on Moneyball 20 years later? I, I saw this in, and... Uh you know, so someone brought this up that it's the 20th anniversary since Moneyball was first produced. And I still, and they were asking the question, does, does this book, you know, stand the test of time? And I really think it does. And so, uh, you know, I, you know, I've got it in my shelf. I thumbed through it, you know, over, over the Christmas holidays. And I know that on TV, they had Moneyball, the, uh, the movie on, which I, I think is a, is a great movie. Is, is this it? Uh, uh, so now I wish that if, if let's say they ever did a movie on my life, if I, I would want to have Brad Pitt be me, <laughs> but I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's ever going to occur, but it's, it's a wishful thinking. What really talked about is, is is that that what is the power of disruption? And if you look at all of Michael Lewis's writings, it's always about talking about disruptors and how they find an inefficiency in some market and they try to exploit that. So when you think about liars poker, it was about the mortgage market in Wall Street. If you look at the uh, the blind side, is about football players and you know the you know. Uh, left tackle, uh, flash boys. It's about electronic trading. The big short. It's about the financial crisis. He's, he's always his best books are about people who are disruptors. But in specific liars poker, I think it really just sort of says is that what's the value of opinion versus facts and quantitative analysis, and it ultimately is is, is that. I was going to say Facts, you mean Moneyball now. You're talking about Moneyball, not yeah, Lias yeah, Poker. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Moneyball yeah. in particular, it's always about facts trumping opinion and that, that using the data to direct you where you have. Let the data speak for itself and let the data give you direction is still a sound judgment that 20 years later makes Moneyball still relevant. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And and I really don't think that a lot of people who come across the movie or the book um, realizes kind of the connection it has to uh, to our industry. But that's fascinating. And that's for another day. Of course, you bring up all these books that he's written about people who are disrupting. And of course, it has come to light that one of the books he was working on up until recently, he may still be, is of course about SBF and 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 the FTX uh, debacle, which I will be very interested in uh, finding out what um, where he got to uh, before that blew up. You can certainly call that a disruption, but not necessarily in the way we normally um, talk about disruption. So, so that'll be another interesting book for for him to hopefully finish. And and when you think about early quantum investing, which was mostly f- focused by on, on trend followers and CTAs, is that they really were disruptors. This is that you look about Dunn, John Henry, a lot of the early trend followers, and a lot of even today is, is that they have still been quantitative investing disruptors. And, and now what we probably 
uh, say 20 years ago, you know, CTAs, well, when you look at the managed funds association, it used to be the managed futures association. didn't really, it was thought, it was thought to be outside the hedge fund universe. And now we really think about or embrace trend following quantitative investing as sort of a core part of the hedge fund world. So in some sense, a lot of those early trend followers were the same type of disruptors. And obviously, this is that people like John Henry were very much influenced by Moneyball. And I could sort of say that, you know, that's clearly is, is that that thinking and, and, you know, anyone who knows John Henry knows that he was just a, you know, a baseball data fanatic so he really loved the, the 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 numbers he loved that aspect of baseball and so he was embraced that in, in how he viewed even the, the the red sox and so but think of all of those quants as disruptors and now it's it's considered more mainstream and so the challenge for quant and ctas now is how can they renew being disruptors or what can they do to be more disruptive? Because eventually markets become more efficient. And so they have done some analysis is that if you look at all the statistics that they looked at in Moneyball 20 years ago and you sort of say, do they have the same kind of impact? And the market has become more efficient. You know, like we look at a lot of these stats when we talk about baseball players. So now we have to have a new disruption. We markets are become efficient, so now we've got to think about a new idea to try to try to get an edge in the marketplace. Yeah, I wonder if they brought along that same approach to things um, to when they bought Liverpool Football Club. They probably did, but uh, it's uh, it's just fascinating. Um, and um, yeah, just just one uh, another aspect to. Uh, to our industry and to uh, to trend follow, to the trend following approach really mark as usual this has been fantastic thank you so much for for sharing all of this um for those of you who may not have left a rating and review uh, yet on amazon or spotify or apple i would be so grateful if you would head over to uh, toptradersunplugcom forward slash review that's where all the instructions uh, to um, to how to do this um is available and uh, of course, uh, if you want to share these episodes with your friends and colleagues, family members even, by all means, we would be so grateful. Next week, I have Nick Baltus, head of the R&D over at Goldman Sachs. He's back on the podcast and he will also be a regular co-host coming back uh, during this year. And so we'll be tackling some other sets of interesting topics, I'm sure. Um, if you have questions for Nick, feel free to email them as usual, info at toptradersonplug.com. And we'll do our best to give you some answers. And of course, you can also go and follow the uh, usual resources we have on the website, such as the Trend Barometer and the Daily Market Score. Now, from Mark and me, thanks ever so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you next week. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past 
and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.